Welcome to an episode of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, brought to you by In the Black Canada and Deep Visions Media. I'm your host, Donna Paris, coming to you from Toronto, and I want to acknowledge that the land I am settled on today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples and is home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. I give gratitude and thanks. I am here today with Debbie Miller-Brown. Debbie was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, September 27, 1950. Her birth mother had a connection to Viola Desmond, one of the pioneers of Black culture in Nova Scotia, and we'll talk some more about that as we go on. Debbie has five biological brothers, three who are still living. Debbie Miller participated in the 1968 Olympics and has a great story to share about that and about many other things. Welcome, Debbie Miller-Brown. Thank you, Donna. I'm really excited about doing this with you. Tell me about your early life growing up as a Black girl. Well. You know what, Donna, it's really quite funny for me because as older I get now, I am thinking about those things. Being a little black girl in Halifax, all I can remember is running up and down the street, running, imagine, and playing outdoors. And I met a lady that used to walk by all the time. I can remember her saying to me, oh my dear, you have a pretty little yellow dress on because my grandmother always dressed me up with a crinoline and everything and wearing a pair of rubber boots <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> raining or anything or snowing but I used to run up and down Creighton Street and little did I know that this person that I would see going to work every day would end up being my foster mother so that's where the story really starts I just had a couple of days to think more about being 70 years old and hard to remember I was three <laughs> How was it that you ended up having to be in a foster family? What happened there? Well, Jean States was my biological mom. And Jean worked every day. So my grandfather took care of the boys and myself, but I was the only girl. Helena, at the time, was moving to Ontario. She didn't have any children at that time. Well, she did Uncle Jean. We called Uncle Gene, Uncle Gene, because he was so much older and he paid us money to call him uncle. <laughs> anyway, so she went down to see my grandfather and I wanted to speak to my biological mom and said to my granddad that she was going to be moving to Ontario and she would love to take me there and take care of me. And then in those days, I guess it was hard because like I said, they had the five boys and me being the only girl. My biological mom and grandfather spoke about it and uh, they said, let's do it on a trial basis. So I left when I was three. I was supposed to go to my aunt's who lived in East Preston and lived there with my great-grandmother. My grandfather thought it would be great for me to go to Ontario and that it would be great for my life. What do you remember about your great-grandmother? You said she lived to be 105. What else do you remember about her? Well, I only remember coming back in 1975 to Halifax because I got married to a Nova Scotian. 
and we went out to visit her and it was really something that you would see in the movie. She was sitting on the front porch. She had her cane and she smoked a corn pipe. She told my husband, Leonard, that she drank a shot of rum every day. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, she lived a great, wonderful life. Fantastic. Where did you move to? We actually moved to Hamilton, Ontario. And Helena's son, Eugene Burrell, he was, like I said, quite a bit older than us. And he was living with my aunt. So we got to Hamilton and we stayed there until I was 10. But I used to run up and down the street. Everything I did was running. And it's kind of funny now because when I see my granddaughter, I have to actually say, stop running. <laughs> You're in Hamilton. You yeah. have an adoptive dad who works at Stubco. You have a story about that. Being that young, not understanding racism, Helena and Clifford, that's who his name was, they kept us pretty sheltered. And uh, one day he went to work. He worked at Stalco, the steel plant in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. and, and when he got there, he opened his locker and there was a noose hanging there. Of course, the, the company themselves did the investigation. They called the police. Myself and another foster brother were taken out of school. But I have pictures of Ricky and myself sitting on a curb site with all our friends, not one other black kid. And they were trying to make the picture to the fact of these kids don't even know what's going on. And I kept the picture so that my children could see that really don't know. We had no idea. We were happy. Right. You know, as children. And as you go through this interview, you're going to see more how that came as I grew older, because I never, I don't know if it's people treated me differently or because of my career, I was kind of like a job. I don't know, but I have never, ever. My best friend is Linda, white mm -hmm. girl, lived at her house, slept at her house. We even partied together, went to the States together. Even in the States where people were throwing stones at us, I had no idea, but it was black and white. Oh, you didn't understand the whole thing I about race. I didn't understand. Wow. Okay. Why did they take you out of the school, you and your foster well, brother? Just for fear if something would happen to us as well. But it was resolved quite quickly from the company. What did and they do? They did the investigation and they fired the guy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. And do you recall your family talking about that? Your adoptive family talking with you about no, it? No, everything, everything like that. You know what strong moms are like? Everything was kept from us. Yeah. For us not to worry, you know. It was a different upbringing then. Right. Okay. So let's talk about your running career. What got you into running? I just love it. I loved it when I was little. When I started in the school from Kidney Garden Up, the public schools in Ontario used to have public days, they were called. And I'd get there, no shoes, no nothing, get down on my block, and I was gone. Wow. And I won every race. <laughs> every race. <laughs> Nobody could ever beat me. Also, the skipping rope, that was my favorite. To be able to turn that fast enough to get to the finish line. And it would be only like 50 meters or something like that. But yeah, I did that. And then when I got a little bit older, mom worked at a high school. 
Okay. And she said, like, Deb, you have to come and meet me after school until I get ready, and then we'll go home together. So I used to go there, and I used to look and watch these high school guys run around in circles and circles. And so I asked her one day, I said, Mom, can I bring my running shoes and, and run with the boys? And she said, well, I'll have to check. And she did. And they said, sure, bring her, right? That really was because I tried to beat them. <laughs> I, was, I had to beat the boys. <laughs> so I did that for a number of years. And then I moved on to Brantford. And mom said, I'm going to put her in a club. Great. Because she just, she just loves it. And that's when I, my fabulous coach, he was my only coach. And I had him right up until I went to the Olympics. He actually came. Yeah, Mr. George Churchill. I'm not really sure that we understand just what it takes to get to the place of being able to go to the Olympics. So what was the training schedule like? It was hard. And going to school too. And being a teenager, I couldn't go to all the fun things that my girlfriends were going. I would actually train before I went to school. I would have to get up around 5.30. My dad would take me to meet Mr. Churchill. And I'd run hills till I was near tears. And I'd have to go home, get ready for school. After school, I had to go and meet Mr. Churchill again and run from five, I'd say, till about seven and then go home. So I did that from Monday to Friday, every day. And then Saturdays, I would do a morning or an afternoon or whatever, depending on his availability. And then Sundays was my day off. I had to go to church with mom. Okay. And so you did that from the age of? 10. Until? 17, the Olympics. So yeah. what was it like going to the Olympics? I mean, that oh. was quite a memorable Olympic. Yes, it was. And like I said, I, again, not knowing what student riots or their recessions there or any, I was really hard to believe, Donna, but I was shy. So I didn't talk as much as I do now. Tell us about getting there. We went to the Toronto Exhibition, a competition there. And so you have to qualify right. in different competitions. So I ran at that one. I was so nervous that as I came up out of the block, my legs seized up. So I had pulled a hamstring. So I couldn't do that. So I was quite upset. Then the next competition, I made it. I did it. I ran. And then the last competition I had was in Toronto which I qualified to go out west to a training camp. I went to Calgary and like what you see, doing the treadmills, all wired up, take test your heart. And I passed out with flying colors and came back. And my final race was in Montreal to qualify for the Olympics. And that was probably the most exciting thing to me. But mom couldn't go, so I had to go with Mr. Churchill. And when I came in, I can remember her standing at the kitchen table peeling potatoes. And she said, Debbie, how did you do? I took my trophy, and I went, oh, I won again. So nonchalant <laughs> like that? Yeah. She says, do you know what that means? You're going to the Olympics. I went, yeah. <laughs> but I was never a boaster, unless we were in a conversation. I never came up and said, oh, I was in the Olympics, Donna. Like, you know, because I didn't think people care. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the city of Brantford made a big deal about you going. Tell us about that. Once we got all the papers and everything, 
the mayor of Bramford decided to throw a big party. Here's a small town. Right. Other than Wayne Gretzky, but at that time I was more important than Wayne. He <laughs> came after me. They threw a big party. So we had friends from Paris, Ontario, Hamilton, Toronto, family, friends, high school friends, everybody. This open city wide as people came and we lived beside a um, Methodist church okay. and we lived in the parsonage. So mom opened up the house to that so people could come and all that whole block, our next door neighbors and everybody, so that as people flow down the street, they can go in each other's and grab something to eat. It was really wonderful. Then the fire department and the uh, police department threw a fundraiser so that my mom could go. Go to so, Mexico with you? Yes. Yeah, so they sponsored her to go and then she was billeted out by a Mexican family. So it was quite beautiful, beautiful thing. Before you went to Mexico, did you have to do some additional other training? About two weeks before prior, we went to Vancouver because of the altitude in Mexico. So we had to go through all that training. But again, now I'm on the Olympic team, so I don't have my personal coach. So I had to go through all that, but I met wonderful people, lifetime friends now. So we went through that until we boarded. I think it was like early October. It opened till the 27th of October. It was crazy because here we are now. We got our uniforms. We arrived at the airport. And then this is when the Jeeps come because of the student riot. We had to get in these Jeeps with these people with guns in their hand. Wow. So, so that was our first initial. And then, of course, the opening ceremony just blew me out of the water because all these people and all these countries, and we marched around the track and people hooting and hollering and waving their hands. And I was trying to look for my mom, like in front of thousands of thousands of people, I couldn't see her. That's when I think I realized I did it. You know, I did it. So you were at the 1968 Olympics when Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists to take a stand against racism. Well, I always watch the races, right? The guys running. Anything that pertained to sprints, I was right there. And I knew what they had done. And as I saw them raise their fists and their tams, you'll laugh at this. I thought, okay, being American, that's why they wore the tams. And when they raised the fist, I thought it was like, yeah, go like, you know, when you raise your fist and yell. So <laughs> in the meantime, I believe we had a discussion with our coaches that were there and they talked about it. They just said, okay, they're just doing something that they really truly believe in. So for me, when I got to see mom, I said, oh, they were just so proud of themselves. I had no idea that it was a black power thing. Don't I was never aware of that kind of stuff. Because mom never talked about it. Like, I mean, you know my brother, Ronnie, and you remember my other brother, John. We were not brought up like that. We mm -hmm. would laugh and talk and we had our friends. And it wasn't about the color. So there was never any discussion about race in your home growing up? Nope. No, no. Nobody ever said this might happen to you? Like someone might call you the N-word or somebody might do something to you. This is what you need to do about it. Nobody would call me the N-word because, you know, I had Ronnie and Johnny. 
and probably if they would have i probably would have told them that's not right mm -hmm. so i've always been that way and what do you think about for johnny and ronnie do you recall any incidents that they might have had around racism growing up in Brantford? no not at all no like i said we always used to say our with our friends, it's the League of Nations, right? Because Johnny would have Native friends, Ronnie had white friends, I had white friends. And you gotta remember too, Bramford, there was not many people of color. Okay. So I think we did well with what we had to do. Like in school, we did well. I remember going out to North Park, it was a collegiate and it was like the richer kids. I used to go out there and compete and join a gymnastic team and never had a problem. I'm so glad nowadays because when I hear all of this stuff, can't understand it. Why go through this? You never had any incidents with teachers, nothing like that? Only one teacher because I climbed out of the home ec room's window. <laughs> met my friends and we skipped school. But that was... <laughs> That was it. Like I was so tomboyish, right? But that would have been it. I never had any problems. And all my high school, I mean, Doug and I were up there for my classic and he went in the gym and here's my name, still records. He said, 100 meters, 200 and relay. It's still, I'm 70 years old and my records haven't been broken. Wow, that is amazing, Deb. I want to go back and talk about Jesse Owens. You got to meet Jesse Owens at the 1968 Olympics. Tell us about that. Well, we were in the food pavilion, a bunch of athletes, and we were getting ready for our lunch. And one of my friends said, Debbie, look, because I always said, I want to meet Rudolph. Wilma Rudolph. Rudolph and Jesse Owens. Wilma didn't come that year. And she said, there's Jesse Owens. He was making his rounds. He did the Americans first, and then he did, I think, the Russian girls next, and then our Canadian. And he started talking, and I was just like glued. Many, many interesting stories. And he had the biggest smile. So we were just so enthralled, right? And I raised my hand, you know, Miss Polite. <laughs> and I said, could you sign my translation book? And he did. And he said, if you want to write me and he gave me his address never did because i was still young right 17 so never did it was the highlight of my track really just seeing him so the translation book that he signed where is that at now halifax it's in the sports hall of fame in halifax yeah right okay you mentioned wilma rudolph what inspired you about her and what other female athletes inspired you she had gotten sick with polio and trained and worked and well she was the fastest woman tennessee state because i wanted to go to tennessee state university okay after i uh, left the olympics but i just loved her because she was so graceful and she came back from a really deadly sickness to be one of the fastest women in the world so yeah oh, and my no. second was why Matthias, and i'll tell you why because she was in my semifinal. That was the woman I had to be to be <laughs> gold medal winner. But she was the nicest person I ever met. 
actually after our race, she came over and she grabs me around the neck and she goes, my little Canadian. When you're there with competitors, we're not against each other. Track is a lovely sport, I just can honestly say. You were honored when you returned from the Olympics. Can you tell us about that? Well, we got uh, Mr. Churchill. He made arrangements. We had to go to Toronto and uh, it was an induction, a medal of excellence for my sports career. The first one was with Prime Minister Diefenbaker and the second was Trudeau. Wow. Again, it was like, I got it hung around my neck. I go home and mom said, well, how'd it go? Oh, it was okay here. <laughs> so that was my whole, I wasn't jumping up and down or I, I just took it. I just took it. You didn't think, oh, this is a big deal. I went to the Olympics. I met Jesse Owen. No. I've been given the Medal of Excellence by the Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau. You didn't no. think it was a big deal? No, no. Because I knew I wanted to do it. But see, I grew up just being happy that what I did was good. Even I uh, won at high school, Miss Snow Queen. So I beat all these girls, <laughs> white girls, Asian girls, everything, and ended up being Miss Snow Queen. But I had to take a date, right? <laughs> so I took six foot seven white guy. Well, I'm five foot one. <laughs> And we go for the big thing is the Snow Queen. When I'm with my girlfriends, they said, what was the Snow Queen? I said, it's like a winter carnival. And they went, you won it? <laughs> my picture was in the paper, everything. But it was nothing to me. Donna, I don't know what it was, but I wanted to win everything. So maybe that was what I, I needed to do. Have to win everything. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm older, I keep looking back and say, why did I, you know, never played cards, mm -hmm. never played board games. And then, as you know, in my later careers, Mary Kay, Avon, I had to be up there number one. So that's mm -hmm. interesting that you have the drive to be number one, but you weren't bragging about it. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that was from mom trying to say, you don't have to be boastful. You know what you did. When were you inducted into the Bramford Hall of Fame? And what was that like? 1984. Well, the Bramford one is Wayne Gretzky Center, which is wonderful. Mom did come to that. There was a number of honorees. Actually, uh, Walter Gretzky was there. And a lot of the people there are people I've known when I was 16 and 17. For me to go back there and uh, see these people, it was more like... And as soon as I got up, I had to get up and speak. And the gentleman that did all my uh, exposés and things like that for the newspaper, right. his name was Ted Bear. He was there. And he gave me the most incredible glowing report on my achievements because he covered me. It was so wonderful to see him. And he passed away, like I could say, five years after that. And the Qantas Club in Brantford called me up and asked me to come and speak at his it wasn't the funeral but it was they had done an acknowledgement for him on how well he wrote in sports and he was never negative or and I got to go back there and speak for that how has running impacted your life number one is uh coaching at a major university in Halifax which St. Mary's 
Bramford would send guys up to St. Mary's to go to school there. And I went to high school with them and I got to see them again. I used to coach Larry Utech. He would get me to run some of his players that weren't fast up on Citadel Hill. And um, you know how big those boys are. And again, I'm just a tiny little thing, but I would yell my lungs off. Uh, St. Mary's had a wonderful time coaching there. Moving on to anything that I'd done with sales is one, because being shy, but I was never shy to sell anything. Mary Kay got the car right away. I didn't get a pink Cadillac, but I got a red Grand Am. And my last adventure was the uh, Citadel High, 3,000 student, and I coached there. But consider now with COVID, mm-hmm. so I don't know when I'm going to go back or if I'm going to get a chance to go back. Pauline Johnson Collegiate, they've established something in your name. The Qantas Club, and there is a coach there who every time I would be in Bramford, I'd call Mr. Chisholm, his name was. He put my name forward and said, we should have a classic and uh, it should be Debbie Miller. They have a locker room with my name on the door. They have uh, my Olympic jacket and they have this classic. The first year I went out, I had to give a speech in front of all these athletes. I want to tell you about this wonderful little girl I met. So she came up to me and she said, coach. And I said, yeah. And she said, I just want to tell you, I'm going to beat your record today. And I had to smile on my face. Linda's with me and Doug's with me. And I go, no, she's not. <laughs> Anyways, cheering her on, like I was on the court, like you would have thought I was ready to run again. And I was yelling at her to get going, get going. Oh, Donna, it was so sad. She cried. She gave me her number and email address. I called her back that night when we got to Ronnie's house and told her what a wonderful thing. Her father happened to be there. And it was the most greatest thing I had ever done. Just the fact that I called her. And she came from a broken home, but her father had taken her. She lived with the grandma. So those stories matter to me because Mm -hmm. I don't care the color of the skin. If I can help, I'm going to be there for you. The story of your mom not being able to look after you and your grandparents having to take over and then you having to go and live with a foster family. How has that shaped your life? It's really important because living in Ontario with Helena, I never thought much of my biological family because I was happy. I remember one day that Helena cutting potatoes at the table. She looked out in the back of her house in the yard and she said, look at the window. She said, do you know who those two people are? And I looked, and it was my older brother, Greg, and Barry. She said, do you know who they are? And I turned around and looked at her, and I said, my brothers? Because she had foster kids, she made sure that we knew. Greg was living in Toronto. Barry was living in Halifax. Barry came up to visit Greg and decided to come and find me. Wow. So how many years had been that you hadn't seen them? I was taken at three and I got back at five. So from the time I was five, five from five to 12. Yeah. 12 years old. Yeah. And it was so incredible. So now we talk or we see each other. My baby brother, Denny. All right. So you got back connected to your family through that. Yeah. Yeah. Once I got married, see, and moved to Halifax. 
Ronnie and Johnny now have passed on in Uncle Gene. So it's just me and that family left. Wow. And so did you ever reconnect with your birth mom? Yeah. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. So you had mentioned earlier, your biological mom had a connection to Viola Desmond. Yeah. I only had learned this by, oh, I'd say about 10 years. Because I didn't even know who Viola was. Now, I didn't know the history of Nova Scotians or anything, right? So I didn't follow that. And then my sister-in-law had sent me a picture of Viola and her hairstylers. She had circled my mom. And, oh, I was just like, oh, my dear, that's wonderful. Because I didn't know that my biological mom was a hairdresser. Wow. Other than that, as far as the history, you know, I wouldn't know. But a friend of mine actually has went out and got like Olivia, my granddaughter, Shalina, my daughter, and my son, Jeffrey, the Viola $10 bills and gave them to them at Christmas time. Keepsakes. So yeah. Nice. Doug, he's got four grandkids. He gave every one of them too. So it's just the history, the history. Do you know anything about your adoptive family, about their journey, how they ended up in Canada? Well, mom, she lived in Halifax. She lived right down on Grayton Street wasn't far from my grandfather's house and her mother it's really kind of ironic because I'm a brown by marriage and her mother was named Lena Brown but they weren't related mama is originally from Yarmouth I think she had two brothers and a sister yeah Yarmouth and then moved to Halifax and you don't know anything about the how they got to Yarmouth or anything about their parents no, like I said the quietness here to be seen and not heard I'm sure, Donna, you remember that saying from our parents. That's what we were. We were seen and not heard. I don't believe in that because I want to hear from Olivia. I want to know what she's thinking. You talked about not being aware of racism as a young person growing up, other than the incident that happened with your adoptive father and not having experienced racism that you can recall. What was your reaction to all the things that were happening this past summer with the death of George Floyd, Brianna Taylor? It's uh, very disturbing. I think I kind of chalked it up to it's the states, but really it isn't. And I know it. We all bleed red and the natives, the Asians, whatever. I don't understand. Like, how can you hate another human being? It's not even turning a blind eye to it. It's just, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. This is called the I Am Black History Podcast, Our Voices, Our Stories. You don't know your history beyond grandparent, possibly, mm -hmm. and, um, and not much of that. Would you like that to be different for your children and their children? And... It's funny you ask that question, Donna, because Olivia on Sunday night said to me, uh, come here, Debbie Miller-Brown. And I said, what? Because she's six, right? <laughs> she said, because you are this track star. So she was up in my bedroom with me and my foster mother's picture was on the wall. And she said, Nanny, who's that? And I said, that was my mother. And so she took the picture into her dad. So yes, I think there is a need that now to start letting her know. But like I said, other than as far as East Preston, my grandmother, I don't know to look, but I actually saw an article on ancestry that you can go and look up. So I called my biological brother, Barry, 
And I called my biological brother, Greg, and started asking them questions. So I am on the walk. I would love to find out who my father was. Has it felt like something missing from your life all this yes. time? Yes. Yeah. I recall a dinner party. And uh, when I was told that a particular person was my father and the person said, no, I'm not. If I am, I want a blood test. That was a long time ago. I didn't even bother to research. Now I do, because I, I'd like to be able to say, wow, I did have a father, even just by the name. And your grandmother, who lived to be 105, she lived in Preston. What was her last name? States, like Jean States, Ralph States, Pearl States. And I'm named after my grandmother, Pearl, because my name is Deborah Denise Pearl. Uh, so we were all States. States and Grace. Uncle Dan, that was his mom that lived there. Okay. So she was between the States and Grace, yeah. So that's a piece of your history that you are looking to start to explore more of now? Yes, yes. I'm really looking forward to doing this because it's, uh, I got a big old smile on my face. It's, it's a lot of work, but, you know, I'm willing to do it. I want to thank you, Donna, for doing this because me sending you those sites, I got to read over them again. And it wasn't taking the attitude that I usually do is, oh, yeah, I did that too. And it brought Jeffrey into it, which is because he called me today and said, oh, mom, I'm so proud of you. So, I mean, that's something that we we never talk about. Oh, I did put him in track once, him and Shalina. <laughs> oh, they hated me for it. <laughs> I put Shalina in shot put and I put Jeffrey in sprints. They went once and never came back. <laughs> so I never pressured them. What would you say to young athletes today, young Black athletes who are looking to do what you did, end up possibly in the Olympics? What would you say to them? Stay focused. And they got to love it. They've got to love it and make it their purpose. Any sport, not just track and field, but any sport, they got to really stay focused and say, I can. Mm -hmm. I can. It will take hard work. I did a lot of crying. If you can put your heart and soul in, you can do anything. I have a little friend. All the other kids are taller than him, but he gives it his all. And every year we have the Nationals. I am there. It was incredible last year. I met a couple of people at the Nationals, and the parents ended up sending their kids to me to do the boot camp on Sit Over the Hill. So I ran a boot camp and I uh, had one young girl, tall, lanky, and she had a heart murmur. She came out every time. This is what I'm missing. Like, I'm not down with it. I wish they can kick this pandemic so I can get back to work. Because you miss the running. I miss the running. And I miss the kids. Because my grade 12s from last year, I miss them going off graduating. I have a young guy now. He calls me. Coach, when we going back? When we going back? Like even to go in the school, right? It's kind of scary. And most of the kids now, they're usually go to school, go right home. Can you describe what it feels like when you're doing the running when you were young? What's the feeling when you're running? I'm out of breath. <laughs> Do you know when you go skydiving? Have you ever been skydiving? No, thank you. <laughs> For me, it was like skydiving. Jumping out of a plane with a parachute, but I'm running. Mm -hmm. and when I get to the end it's that lean right and it was like I did it 
sprints, of course, are quick, right? And they're over. I remember Mr. Churchill making me run. We were in Toronto. One of the girls got sick, so I had to run a 400. Now a 400 is a sprint. It didn't used to be. I ran this 400. I thought I was going to die by the time I got to the end because I didn't know how to run it. But I knew how to run a 100 and a 200. And I perfected it. Again, Donna, you're bringing it all out of me, but that's it. It was I was looking for that perfection. I was looking for it. I'm still not perfect yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, Just about there. <laughs> thank you so much, Debbie Miller-Brown, for being here with us today. We really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you, Donna. And I love being on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out our website, www.intheblackcanada.ca to listen to Black Canadians from across this country talk about their experiences and those of their ancestors of being Black in Canada. And if you have a story to tell, contact us through the website or at intheblackcanada at gmail.com. You can catch more episodes of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, wherever you get your podcasts. And this podcast was made possible by a grant from the Canada Council for the Arts.